back to That's Ancient History for a very exciting episode. I think I say that at the beginning of every episode, actually, but I'm very excited to be here because it's a little bit of a different one. I'm joined today by my good friend and incredible author, Jen Campbell, author Hi. of work for children, adults, fiction, non-fiction, poetry, prose, uh, whose latest book is The Sister Who Ate Her Brothers, a collection of creepy fairy tales from around the world with beautiful illustrations by Adam D'Souza so you know like I know we all love a bit of antiquity but I think we all love a bit of folklore and fairy tales from other cultures as well so you know go check it out (laughs) thanks I like you being my hype woman I enjoy that thanks it's so easy to be your hype woman (laughs) oh god we're gonna just sit here and flatter each other for the rest of this podcast nice nice I think we need that in our lives don't we it's nice (laughs) and it's entirely sincere as well like if I hated it I'd say so oh god (laughs) I'm glad thank you for your honesty I appreciate it and you're wonderful as well and today we're here to talk about Eugene on your podcast it's like getting very meta I like it I know so uh, if that wasn't clear enough we've actually decided to turn things around today and Jen is going to be host and interviewer and I am going to be interviewee because Last year, gosh, was it only last year? It was 2020. I actually published my first ever children's book called Greek Myths, um, which is a nonfiction title all about Greek mythology that was published by DK, an imprint of Penguin Random House. And I wanted to talk more about it, but didn't quite know what format to do that in. So given that in the past, I've had the pleasure of interviewing Jen about some of her books, I felt that asking her to ask me some questions and chat a little bit more about my book might be the way to do it. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's a very good plan. Also, I hate to tell you it wasn't last year, Jean. It wasn't last year. Oh no! last year. It's 2022 now. Time means nothing though, so it doesn't matter. (laughs) We can discuss time meaning nothing in this podcast as well, but primarily, yes, let's talk about Greek (laughs) Yes. And let's talk about your book, which I would hold up for everyone to see, but that would be pointless because this is a podcast. But the first question, I wanted to ask a really general question, which I'm sure is something that you could spend a long time answering. So okay. take this in any direction you would like to, but how would you describe your relationship with Greek myths and how that's changed over time? Oh, okay. Just, you know, for a little question to get started. <laughs> so I think... Um... In terms of the fact that I wrote this book for children, it's a children's introduction, although like anybody of any age can realistically read it. It's not dumbed down. Um, I started with Greek myth in the same format, if that makes sense. Like I came across Greek myth as a child on television, in comic books, in children's books. Um, And it was this like fun magical world almost um, that connected with this ancient civilization that used to exist which was super cool in my mind and I loved it and I loved it so much I thought hey I'm gonna go study these ancient people at university Um, and then I learned that the myths were in a lot of ways much darker than I had come to expect from things like Disney's Hercules Um, and I think it's fair to say that Although we've been retelling and um, compiling Greek myths for decades and centuries um, in the in like the Western world and in Britain, um, 
there has been different trends in in the way that we have um not retold them necessarily because my book isn't a retelling but in the way we have shared them and actually there's been a lot more liberties taken in the past so if you like read victorian collections of greek myths they're very christianized and they're very moralized and you watch Disney's Hercules and Zeus is this awesome like big king god who loves his son and is in a happy committed non-adulterous relationship with his wife and everything is glossed over a little bit and you think of um Christian religion being a religion where god is beneficent right like he's he's a good guy um that's not the way it is in greek mythology gods do terrible things and there's no expectation that they would be held to the morals and ethics of mortals and I was shocked by a lot of that <laughs> when I when I went to university and I now have a much more adult relationship with myth but I don't necessarily think that that has to be an adult relationship with myth like in my book I don't try to pretend that the Greek gods never did anything bad <laughs> Yeah, and I think that you, I mean, I know that we discussed this a lot when you were writing it as well. Like how do you include things that may be difficult to write about for kids when you have a limited amount of space, yes. which I would like to, to get onto in a bit <laughs> as well, because I think that we could talk about that for, for quite a long time. But I know this because um, I've talked to you about this, but for the other people who don't know this, how did this book then came, like come to be? How did it happen? Um, so, as you know, I run this podcast. Um, I generally sort of, I would say, like, I I, I work in the field of classics. I'm, I, I, I love how you say that like it's a question. You definitely do. <laughs> you know, though, when it's not like a straightforward, here's my full-time job and position. Um, like, I am a freelancer and I write and um, I have taught at university. I've given talks to children. I also am a social media consultant, completely unrelated to any of this. So, you know, I do things, um, other things with my life. Um, but obviously my passion is with ancient history and classics and I've been trying to get my PhD for many years now and <laughs> I, I, I say that not because I've been failing to get it I've just been doing lots of different things one of them has been my PhD and that should be something I'm done with in 2022 like we're almost there um, and I also worked in publishing so I had have this experience of you know someone who works in publishing someone who um works in ancient history who does the academic side of things but also does the um making ancient history accessible side of things and um, yeah. going to literature events and like talking to children and things like that I feel like I really need to find a way to um concisely speak about <laughs> what I do on an everyday basis better but oh, you um, and me both you and me both I think it's fine <laughs> uh, yeah I have a lot of different areas which I work in um but they are predominantly ancient history and publishing and writing and this was those two things coming together I got talking with DK who are um a publisher I always want to call them a children's publisher because obviously I write children's books with them. And when I was a kid, I read children's book for them with them, but they do publish for adults as well. They're a non-fiction publisher that are, like I mentioned, an imprint of Penguin Random House. Um, and they've been around for a very long time. And I myself read a ton of like ancient history books, 
published by DK as a kid, which was a really nice, you know, full circle to then write one. And um, I basically sent them some examples of my writing, some stories that ended up in the book in, in edited ways. So, for example, the first story I ever wrote for this book is actually The Myth of Dionysus, which is somewhere in the middle. Um, I wrote that and The um, Myth of King Minos to give them an example of my writing and they liked it and they said let's work together let's do a whole book and it's actually now part of a series so it's an ongoing series that DK are publishing looking at mythologies from all around the world all of which are illustrated by the incredible Katie Ponder and I am actually the writer of book three which comes out this year all about Egyptian myth yeah. <laughs> I'm not the author of Norse myth though Norse myth is um by another writer but it's also fantastic <laughs> I've got that on my shelf as well, and I look forward to reading that because so much of my Norse myth, even though I've read the uh, the poetic edda, is informed by Marvel. And I'm sure that, like with Disney <laughs> Hercules, I'm going to discover a lot of errors in that, but also, you know, some crossover and some fun things to discuss. But I think you're right that like DK is such an integral part of uh, childhood learning in school libraries if you're in the UK. And I had some uh, a couple of DK books for anyone who's listening who would have been a kid in like the 90s like us um <laughs> the the books I remember that they mainly had were white right and they had they were white and a bit shiny almost laminated yep. and naked hardbacks and they would have I think I had like a book on skeletons and it was all yes. kind of skeletons and I used to love looking at that because it was quite well like your books quite a large format book so yep. I would read it but I would also use it as a, a rest in bed when I was writing I would use yes. it uh, to prop my uh, work up on lots of lots of different uses. I wonder to what extent those skeletons then influenced your writing oh yeah maybe just hang out with skeletons in my bedroom all the time and then thought I'll take that into my adult writing was the process of publishing what you thought it was going to be because obviously you've seen it from the other side because mm. you work in publishing but I still think you know from my point of view I worked as a bookseller so I saw the end product of books and then I w worked within publishing and then I became an author and yes I understood lots of different things about the process but you always learn more when you're in a certain part so what was as you thought it would be and what was something that surprised you? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, like you said, I, I worked and work in like marketing, but I used to work in-house in the comms department of a publishing house and now I'm freelance. Um, so I guess I didn't have as much experience on like the editorial side of things. Like I, like you with book selling, always came to books at the end of their publishing process, you know, at the point where they are fully realised. Um, and they're coming out into the world. Well, as you're saying, also the publishing is even different when you're in the the process of it because this book isn't something that you wrote on your own and then took to publishers. A publisher approached you and said, "This is our kind of uh, vision for what this book should be." So you're having to juggle what you would like to put into the book and yeah. also what they want from it as well, which must have also been another thing that you had to juggle as you went along. Absolutely, and this is like we've already touched on, DK are experts in children's nonfiction, right? They have years, decades of experience um, that will be, you know, passed throughout the company um, based on what they've published for children in the past, where um, they have talked with teachers and other like educational professionals, and, and they know some of the most important parts of making a children's book, um, whereas 
I know about ancient history, you know, like I've spent years and years and years now of my life <laughs> reading and writing and working um, on ancient history. Um, so it it was almost, and I, I feel like in a lot of ways, quite a collaborative experience because I obviously hadn't previously published a children's book. I had done teaching and talking with children before so I had that experience but it was really interesting going back and forth with my editor DK about um sort of like what is helpful for children when reading nonfiction and like helping them to understand but also like I said before not like talking down to them and it yeah. was a really nice experience in in that way so what was your favorite part of the process in the end I mean I think my favorite part was seeing the illustrations. <laughs> it's like a really passive thing, but it's so exciting to write these stories and then get sent through these illustrations that someone has done of your words. And yeah, they're not characters I've created, but it was scenes that I'd written and descriptions I'd given and seeing Katie Ponder bring all that to life. It felt like the words were obviously a really integral part to the teaching aspect of the book but then added together with the illustrations was what brought the book to life so it made it feel very real do you know what I mean I do know what you mean uh, and also from my point of view like writing books that are then illustrated it, it gives you license to appreciate the book in a separate way and praise the stuff about the book that you didn't do yourself you yes. have no shame in being like this is so beautiful because you had no part in it exactly. um it doesn't feel conceited for me to walk around or be on the internet saying this book is gorgeous look how beautiful this book is exactly and I think we should be allowed to say that about our own stuff too but I completely understand the the wanting to hold back on that and also appreciating something about the book where you're not going to be critical about it because well, Katie's illustrations are beautiful and your writing is fantastic too. But whenever we look at something that we've done ourselves, we're going to find fault in it in some yeah. form. So it must, well, I know <laughs> from experience, it is a relief to focus on an element of the book that you can just enjoy. Yes, I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. So how we touched on this before, but how did you navigate what to omit? Because as you said, there's a lot of non-consensual stuff going on in Greek myths. There's a lot of sexual violence. This is also the case with fairy tales, um, which I find tricky when talking about the history of with kids, because I don't want to erase things because I think it's important to yeah. think about violence and all its various forms, but also if you don't have the time and space to give that the weight that it deserves, you also yep. don't want to make it seem uh, lighter than mm -hmm. it actually is. So how, what did you decide to do in the end mm -hmm. with all the um, sexual violence? Well, this was absolutely a thing that was part of the back and forth, right? Between uh, me mm -hmm. and, and DK having conversations about like what to include, what not to include, or not necessarily what not to include, but like how to include it because yeah. they have um, their guidelines and their experience with children and education. And I have my experience with the myths. And also going back to say like Victorian collections of myths or say like not Victorian, but collections like Robert Graves or any sort of early collections of Greek myths. And there's a lot of old children's ones from the Victorian era. There is a tendency with myths involving sexual violence. Um, and I feel like we can talk about this here because this is not a children's podcast. Not that yeah. this is a topic that can't be talked about with children, but obviously I'm approaching it from um, the assumption that this is an adult audience listening. So there's a lot of sexual violence in myths, a lot of it. Um, and I, 
it is something that I myself am particularly versed in because that's where my research specialties lie when it comes um, to uh, my actual thesis and um, academic stuff that I write. And in a lot of these older Victorian retellings, there is a massive tendency, if not an exclusive tendency, to pretend those relationships were consensual. So instead of saying that Zeus raped someone, they say Zeus and this person fell in love with each other, or they can even somehow almost incidentally imply um, that they were uh, like an active participant in something that they weren't, if that makes sense. Um, There's a lot of versions, say, of like the myth of Io, which isn't actually in this book, but in Victorian versions of the Io myth, Io is a consenting participant and sometimes even like a seductress as opposed to a victim or a survivor Mm -hmm. um, of sexual violence. Um, Whereas in this book, I never wanted to imply a relationship was a loving or consensual one if there wasn't an example of that in the myth if that makes Mm -hmm. sense, although there's not space necessarily to explore in depth issues around sexual violence in this book, um, it was something that I found very, very important to never pretend that a relationship was consensual. So sometimes because of the editorial process, that just simply meant saying um, Zeus made someone pregnant. People will have different feelings on um, the extent to which maybe Um, the book deals with it but for example in Greek mythology the goddess Metis is sexually assaulted by Zeus um, and falls pregnant and that's what eventually leads to the birth of Athena Um, but rather than say Metis and Zeus fell in love and had a child I was very clear in the book that Metis did not feel the same way that Zeus felt about her she tried to escape from him but she fell pregnant nevertheless. So like within the remits of what um, I was allowed to write as a children's author um, for the publishers, I was clear that the myth did not paint them as a happy couple because at the end of the day, it's a nonfiction book and I also just don't want to lie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that you balance that really, really well. And I think it's a really difficult thing to do. (laughs) Well done on that that balancing act. There's obviously Um, loads of conversations around this going on and there's loads of conversations about this going on in like the ancient history and classics community, which are absolutely incredible. And people are doing research on children's literature and to what extent we should talk about things like sexual violence in there. Um, And it's something that's like a continuing conversation that we need to be having. But I think like first and foremost coming from the position that we don't pretend non-consensual relationships are consensual is like you know the baseline well I think that especially when as you say this is a non-fiction book so you're going back to the as original as possible like versions of these tales um I think retellings maybe fall into another slightly gray area there is then a distinction as well obviously between a retelling where like it it is up to you what you do in the end oh yeah you can do what you want whereas my book is supposed to be presented as these are versions that the ancients would have read. So like sometimes there's a ancient Greek myth where there's multiple different versions and I had to pick which version went in the book. But sometimes there's only one version and that's the only version that can be in the book. And therefore we can't pretend that's not the version. As you said, you could write like whole papers on this stuff. I think what what the crux of it, what I find interesting as not taking individual examples, but 
as a whole, like as a society, if we're retelling things like the things that we choose to cling on to, mm-hmm. and then the things that we may choose to get rid of. Mm-hmm. So if I'm talking about, as you know, talk about a lot like disability mm-hmm. and fairy tales or myths, that seems to be clung to so much, even if you're retelling things like clinging on to those old things and thinking about Marvel, um, which I think there's a whole paper to be written about, I'm sure someone's yeah. already written, but about how Marvel is it's almost turning into folklore because there are so many different versions of it. There isn't really a concrete author anymore so much. I think that's fascinating. Like in the future, maybe this is our fairy tale. There's all these superhero characters. Like that would be fascinating to me because there are so many alternate universes, so many different ways of existing. And it feels like it belongs to everyone almost because of that, because it's a collective writing experience. But so many people when retelling Marvel will be like oh well this baddie has disability because it was in the original text and I don't want to change it but yeah sure I'll take this really problematic romantic relationship and I'll change that (laughs) I'm like okay (laughs) why do we why do we do that anyway we can we could talk about this yeah off podcast another time like extensively I find it fascinating I think it's being conscientious about what you're changing and what you're not changing isn't it it's like you should think about why you are doing things rather than just simply doing them (laughs) And I think also it's one of those things where in each instance you could find an excuse for doing it that oh, yeah. one time. But then when you look at the patterns and how those interact with each other overall, it's kind of a different thing. Yeah. Um, I find Greek mythology so overwhelming. Um, <laughs> and I'm so glad that this book exists because I can refer to it as an encyclopedia of knowledge when it comes to Greek mythology. Obviously, I would recommend that everybody reads this book because then they can have the the knowledge of the entire book but 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 (laughs) if someone was going to be like I'm not going to read your book which is rude obviously but if they were and they (laughs) wanted to think about a foundation of Greek mythology what are a couple of key stories that you would recommend that they research yeah so I think I mean it's going to sound boring but I think one of the integral myths of ancient Greece is the Trojan War and I say that from the perspective of somebody who enjoys myth just for the sake of entertainment value, but also for somebody who finds it interesting in terms of what it meant to the society, because the Trojan War myth is one that was written about so often. It is so clearly significant to the ancient Greeks. Um, and it becomes, or it is a it is a myth and a story, which is also perceived very much as historical to the ancient Greeks, and therefore it becomes something that they reference in law courts and philosophy and all genres really the Trojan War is always ever present and it's something that you know the Greeks could almost use to relate to one another by mentioning this thing that happened in the Trojan War and everyone knows what they're talking about so therefore you might then read something ancient and knowing about the Trojan War will help you understand that if that makes sense. I think so and I think that's definitely a good place to go to as well as having the stories in this book um Mm. to reference you also have a list of mythological creatures that creep up quite often what are some of your favorite mythological creatures oh my goodness i love all of the mythological (laughs) (laughs) you know i still just reference hercules's uh like the disney hercules pegasus just you know if i'm falling asleep i'll do the thing I'll just yeah, do that that's all wrong Jen I know it's all wrong I know and hair is not pink and all of that I know Pegasus as you'll know if you've read the book was actually the companion of Bellerophon not yes, Hercules not Hercules I know I was I was heartbroken 
Pegasus is just like his name rather than it being a breed of horse. That's interesting. I think you sort of um, uh, get Pegasus became a myth as if it was like a species of horse throughout mm. like, modern times. I'm thinking of the My Little Pony film when I was a kid because in that there's Pegasus ponies, which are ponies that can fly. I'm like, but yeah. Pegasus is just one guy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe he had lots of children and they all took his name. <laughs> Yeah, like he was he was a legend why not um I feel <laughs> cent- myths about centaurs very very interesting um because they sort of straddle that relationship between like human and animal um and again like amazons as well sort of the yeah, the myths about the amazons tell you a lot about the greeks relationships with sort of like sort of people that don't adhere to the norms of society so these are warrior women which isn't considered normal um at the time so they are used as a myth to sort of explore those those topics he said that pegasus is something that now people use to mean winged horse instead of just the one horse the greek mythology has uh, mutated and is, is so much part of our culture in ways that we probably don't even link anymore, right? Yeah. Um, think of any examples that off the top of your head where people may not realize, oh wait, that's inspired by Greek myth. There's an entire page in the back of Greek myths called Named for the Myths. Yeah, to refer back to the source material, it has a dedicated section in the back just for some fun facts for all the family where um, I share with you some interesting things from the everyday world that actually take their name from antiquity and ancient Greek myth. So like some of the animals um, in the animal kingdom are named after characters from Greek mythology and like aptly as well. So there's um, a Sisyphus beetle, which is named after Sisyphus because in Greek myth, Sisyphus has to roll this giant boulder up to the top of the hill each day and then it rolls back down. Is this it's this never ending task in um, the underworld that he's been punished with. And Sisyphus beetles go around rolling big balls of dung. Yeah, dung beetles. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, or the fact that, in fact, or some that aren't in the book, I'm pretty sure there's a Medusa jellyfish because, you know, yeah, there is. They're, mm-hmm. they're all wiggly wiggly like Medusa's hair. You can't see, but Jean and I are just waving our hands around like tentacles. <laughs> there is a Medusa jellyfish, yes. <laughs> the footage of this. <laughs> 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 Same with the planets. I mean, the planets are all named after Roman gods, um, but they're the same gods, just with different names, um, except for Uranus, which or Uranus, which is in both Greek and Roman myth, has the same name, doesn't change. Um, so Uranus is in the book. Um, yeah, there are tons of things in our like everyday world that have been named after Greek and Roman mythology, which obviously has a lot of overlap. And there are so many books, aren't there, especially that are inspired by Greek myths that maybe you wouldn't immediately think, like The Vegetarian by Hong Kong, which I didn't realise for ages, is inspired by a Greek myth. And uh, An American Marriage by Tayari Jones is also inspired by Greek myths. I haven't read that one. Home Fire by Camilla Shamsey as well. Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, the modern Prometheus. Everyone go read Jean's book, give yourself base knowledge of Greek mythology and then find out and notice how much it interacts with your everyday life because it does yeah Yeah. well you know you've been on my podcast before but it's my turn now to ask you a question oh yeah I forgot you do this at the end okay (laughs) yes I'm ready I'm ready we'll not destroy tradition at the end of every episode I ask my guests to recommend me a book and although I am technically the interviewee today I am still going to turn this on Jen and request a book recommendation it can be absolutely anything you like Okay, well, maybe 
because we are recording this at the beginning of January, I should just recommend my favorite book of 2021. Does that sound yes, like a please? Good? Okay, so I would recommend Mrs. March by Virginia Fito, which is a book that has grown on me. I loved it when I first read it, but then I've also just thought about it so much in the six months since I've read it. It's about a woman called Mrs. March, and it's set in the 1950s in New York. Her husband is an author and she doesn't read the books that he writes anymore because he doesn't really pay attention to her. So she's like, why should I pay attention to the women that you write about? She thinks about his books like his mistresses. So she doesn't really pay attention to them. Then one day she goes to a bakery and in the bakery, the person behind the till says, hello, Mrs. March. How do you feel about your husband facing the main character of his new book on you? And she is appalled and embarrassed because she hasn't read it, but she knows that the main character is supposed to be horrible. So then she has this real internal crisis and she runs home and she's like, right, I must investigate what my husband is doing. Why would he do this to me? I don't know him at all. And she just goes right inside herself and starts to conduct these investigations into who her husband now is because she clearly has misunderstood who he is, or at least that's how she feels at the moment. It takes a lot of inspiration from Jane Eyre and also from Mrs. Dalloway. And it's a wonderful, unreliable narrator. She almost, or she does, rewrite herself. She is trying to uphold this image of how other people see her in like a Desperate Housewives, Stepford mm. Wives kind of way. So it's like she is rewriting herself as a fictional character as her husband writes about these other women. So there's a lot of stuff to think about within the book. It's really creepy, also really funny in places. Very much recommend. And it's being turned into a film starring Elizabeth Moss. And I think that's coming out next year. So if you so want to read good. it. <gasps> Very good. <laughs> well, I believe anyone listening has probably gone away with a lot of reading material now but I would also like to suggest checking out Jen's YouTube channel which is literally Jen V Campbell because in particular you do a fabulous series um, on the history of fairy tales and anyone that's sat through this entire podcast clearly enjoys mythology and folklore and history and that's exactly what those videos are and I do believe occasionally you've referenced myth in them when they've had overlap with fairy tale. (laughs) definitely because a lot of fairy tales as you say are inspired by greek myth like snow white in particular is inspired by the myth of kearney um, but also adam and eve and christianity like fairy tales are a big ball snowball (laughs) of mythology and religion and superstition and weirdness so yeah (laughs) i do if you want to start breaking that down then jen has some resources for you i would highly recommend in fact they will all be linked in the show notes of this podcast i keep pointing down below as if this is a youtube video and you can (laughs) in the description box um because jen and i are obviously recording this over zoom while she's in london and i'm in edinburgh but yeah plenty of stuff to go away with i believe <laughs> yeah read so book thank you so much for coming on and interviewing me <laughs> thanks it was lovely to talk to you so it's nice strange being in the interview easy <laughs> i know <laughs> you all oh, your mind goes entirely blank <laughs> <laughs> um you'll have to come back when um Egyptian myths comes out <laughs> yes please I would like that <laughs> amazing okay well thank you so much to everyone for listening and um we'll be back soon or I'll be back soon Jen might be back soon if she wants to come for another episode sometime um but yeah until then <laughs>